From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More perspective today on the deadly police shooting of an African-American armed robbery suspect in Colorado Springs. Devon Bailey was shot while running away. I'll speak with the head of a civil rights group in the Springs, who's also a former law enforcement officer. Then, what's the price of progress? Remembering a massive displacement in Denver 40 years ago, a Hispanic neighborhood became the Auraria campus. Nobody can deny that education is important, and this campus is one of the jewels of the state. But the question is, on whose back does that build? How this chapter of history resonates today. Plus, simulating climate change. What we've learned from Colorado's artificially warmed meadow. And who's dropping all that cash to buy homes in Metro Denver? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Devon Bailey was buried Friday. The 19-year-old African-American was shot and killed by police in Colorado Springs earlier this month. Bailey was a suspect in an armed robbery, and although police did find a gun on him as he lay dying, body cam footage shows he was running away from officers when he was shot. We're waiting to learn if the district attorney will file charges against the officers involved. Let's get some unique perspective on this from the leader of a civil rights group in the Springs, who's also former law enforcement. Henry Allen leads the Pikes Peak chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he's a former El Paso County Sheriff's deputy. And Henry, welcome back to the program. Thank you. After seeing footage of the shooting, reviewing what you can of the case, uh, what do you make of it? I'm, I'm deeply concerned and troubled by the by, by the shooting of uh, Mr. Bailey. I don't understand how anyone could not be. And I've also received some footage over the weekend from a also a former law enforcement agent, uh, an individual that has expertise in in uh, reviewing. And uh, the, the the running away and the and the shooting once the suspect once Mr. Bailey was a I'm greatly concerned about that. Tell me what concerns you about it. What, as former law enforcement, do you see in that video uh, that makes you think they might have arrived at a different choice? Help help us understand that. Mr. Bailey wasn't, uh, in my opinion, Mr. Bailey was not a threat. Uh, Once he had, even though there was a weapon found on him, he, in, in my opinion, what appeared to me was that he wasn't a threat. But also, uh, I have to look at that. I wasn't on scene. You know, I wasn't the guy there. I wasn't the, the real time. I don't know what the body motions were, the eye contact. You know, uh, what was you know what 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 pursued Mr. Bailey to uh, uh, to think that his life was in, or that he was in danger or. What gave law enforcement with any type of body motion or eye contact? Mr. Bailey gave them as far as they needed to. Uh, they needed to uh, uh, use uh, deadly force. I wonder if there was any part of you watching the video that thought, "Why did he run?" You know, being a former law enforcement, there's many reasons. I'm, uh, you know, I'm speculating that he he may have had a warrant. He may have been. Uh, and I haven't looked at his law enforcement. I haven't looked at his criminal record. Uh, he may be uh, in possession of a weapon and, 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 and maybe a felon. 
which is you're not allowed to have a weapon in the state of Colorado. Well, let me just say he was not a felon, but he had been charged not long before the shooting with three felony charges, including sexual assault on a child by someone in a position of trust. Uh, Bailey had pled not guilty and was free on bond. I want to say that we spoke last week with a former district attorney uh, who explained that Colorado has a fleeing felon law. It allows officers to shoot someone suspected of using a deadly weapon in a felony. Colorado Springs police were investigating an armed robbery. Uh, Before shooting, officers must decide if a suspect uh, poses a significant threat um, and, you know, we, we heard from Patricia Cameron of nearby Manitou Springs. She's a, a writer and she owns Black Packers. This is an African-American outdoors group. And um, this is her impression after watching the footage of the Bailey shooting. What I saw was a child. That's what I saw. I saw a child who took off running. I saw my son take off running. In those circumstances, I perhaps would have given him some more time. I think that officers have their own biases like humans have their own biases however in these cases they have the ability to take someone's life and as somebody who's experienced 36 years as a black american it's not something that i trust in their judgment and i think we need to do a little bit more de-escalation a little bit more training about ways to interact with suspects uh may i get you to reflect on that you know, and, and, and taking take into account that I'm looking at this, and I, we all have our different perspective. You know, but I'm a 24-year soldier in combat arms. I'm a 14-year law enforcement. I'm a civil rights guy. I'm about eight years in civil rights. Uh, there is it, it, the what I saw was law enforcement on the scene because there's a reason that there's a cause because another citizen had called and said, someone put a gun on me. Someone took my property. Someone uh, accosted me on the streets, put a weapon, and took my property. And I think we have lost the, the, the rationale why law enforcement was there. Law enforcement wasn't there just walking the streets and, and contacting Mr. Bailey. There was a reason. And the, 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 the victim, and they're the victim here. Uh, even though Mr. Bailey was shot, there's another victim that was accosted by someone he described as Mr. Bailey and the other individual, and he has the right to have someone come in and protect him also. And that's what law enforcement was, uh, is, is about. Uh, the, the shooting, again, very troubling. But there, there, there need to be, you're right, there need to be a, deep, a deeper look. Uh, I, I would push to the Colorado Springs police and, and, the, and the mayor to, to Excuse me, to look at their training, to, to, to see what their training and what their policies and procedures are with this. Uh, uh, the fleeing felon, Mr. Bailey, in my opinion, once he turned his back and ran, uh, was not a threat to that level where it dictates in the law that you can you know, pull a weapon. I'm also concerned about the fact that there was a neighborhood there. You know, there were there, there could have been children. There could have been bullets ricocheting off the streets. That was an endangerment to that entire community. Uh, I, I I think it, it uh, based on just the visual of the of the video, that there could have been, or you you he he was he was moving away. We could have found him at another date. 
Uh, one more question uh, just about the interaction that we saw on the footage. If you, as a law enforcement officer, could not have seen his hands, even though he was running away, if you can't see a suspect's hands and what he or she might do, is that a cause for concern? Even if their back is turned? There is, there, there is a cause for concern because you, you never know what is in the hands. No, it, it, with, with the with the recent rash, with the recent rise of of law enforcement uh, uh, killings, also uh, we are in a we are in a terrible bad situation at this time. Law enforcement, I think, is afraid of the citizens. Some of the citizens and citizens now are afraid of law enforcement, and those two mixtures is has the potential of just continuing to roll into a tragedy uh, that that we are facing as a community. Uh, but I, I still think that, that that we can get we can get past this. We 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 have to, we have to be willing to talk and have this conversation. Uh, right now, I, the reason I've been silent on this because there's a family that's still going through pain. There's a family that still just buried their son on uh, on Friday, and and, and now some are using this, in my opinion, using this for for a personal agenda. Hmm. Uh, my organization is just, uh, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, Are you surprised this happened in Colorado Springs? Wow, it's, it's, it's really, it's ironic that you asked me that. Back in, uh, uh, back in uh, 2014, when when uh, Michael Brown was, was uh, killed in Ferguson, Missouri, oh. I was then the president of the local branch of the NAACP, and I attended the funeral. And I attended a couple of uh, a few uh, community meetings while there, and on returning back home, uh, I spoke to law enforcement across the El Paso County area. I spoke to the uh, the DA, who is still Dan May, and I warned. I I I was I, I expressed to them my concern that this issue was coming to Colorado Springs, and that we needed to get together as a community. And have this conversation. It is not if it was going to happen. It was when a law enforcement would engage and in, in, in kill an African American male. And five years later, did you? Did you? Uh, I mean, uh, Devon was killed on the third of August. On the ninth of August was the fifth year of the anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown, and we weren't prepared. We, we as a city, and I'll say it, we were not prepared. We, that, that portion of the city where Mr. Uh, 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 Bailey was killed is it, kind of a depressed city. If you look at Colorado Springs in the northeast and the west, it's a booming economy. But that area is very depressed, no jobs, and it's mostly uh, poor, uh, poor whites, poor blacks, uh, uh, and Hispanics. And the city, in my opinion, and I've spoken that to the leaders, no. is not doing anything to battle out to, 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 to put, put energy in that city. Everything is building around that. So when you got people that don't have jobs, uh, don't have uh, a vision that they're, they're, they're being considered like the rest of the city, you have, you, you have an issue like that. You think it's that there's real- economic disparity at the root of this. Henry Allen leads the Pikes Peak chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He's also a former El Paso County Sheriff's Deputy. This is Colorado Matters. (music) 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We hear a lot about displacement in Colorado, people pushed out in the name of progress. There's a striking example of this. It just happens to be 40 years old, yet it still resonates. What we know today as the Auraria campus in Denver, three schools, tens of thousands of students, was a neighborhood largely Hispanic. The displacement eventually resulted in scholarships for families forced to relocate. I met up with a man who knows both versions of Auraria. Tony Garcia grew up there. Now he's a playwright and professor of Chicano-Chicana studies on campus at Metro State. Hi, Tony. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You've chosen a location in front of a rather imposing church. Why this spot? St. Cajetan's Church was built in the 1920s. It was the first Spanish-language church in Denver. Before that, uh, people worshipped at St. Leo's, which is also on this campus, but that was the Irish church, and people worshipped in the basement. So the church has been here for almost 100 years. It was a place for me where I was baptized. Across the street from St. Cajetan's was St. Cajetan's Elementary School, and I went to school there for eight years. My first stage was at that school. Years later, at the King Center Concert Hall, I produced a production called The West Side Oratorio, which was about the displacement of the people here in this neighborhood at the King Center, right across the street, in the space, the school where I once did Christmas productions there. You are also the artistic director of Su Teatro. I noticed that you walked out of your office on campus, which is in the rectory for the church where you were baptized. So we always say I was baptized, confirmed, got confirmation, excommunicated all in the same place. <laughs> Wait, uh, were you, you're joking. <laughs> I haven't been officially excommunicated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but my arc, my arc is really interesting. Uh, I've been a prof here for 25 years, and I got my degree here after the campus was built. It took me a long time to get back to finishing that off. It's really very interesting for me to walk down these streets, especially yeah. 9th Street. That's where we are. This used to be a street where you'd walk down, drive a car, now it's part of campus. And I just want to note that now the church is a computer lab for the University of Colorado. The church was the center of the activity here on 9th Street, and 9th Street was the main street of the west side. Everybody who came, Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, and the immigrants, if you look at the arc of how this community developed, a lot of people came up after the Mexican Revolution, during the course of the Mexican Revolution, which lasts from 1910 to 1920, 1930-ish. People came, they got off and took a train across uh, the bridge at Juarez and came into El Paso, and then they caught a train that let them off at the Union Station. And they walked down here. So you, if you walk it, you can see how vivid and how real it was for people to just kind of gravitate to this space. How far are we away from your childhood home? The house I first lived in was at 725 and a half Champa Street. It's a parking lot now. And all the houses that I lived in, and we lived in a lot because we were poor and we moved very often. But all the houses that, that I lived in have been torn down. But there, I can see the spaces. I know where they were. Do you want to take me Let's to take another me. spot? Sure. When I walk through here, I don't see just the buildings. I see people out there playing, you know, out in their porches, having conversations. I remember us playing football out in the middle of the street here. Uh, on the corner that we'll be approaching on the left side is, uh, was Eddie's Groceries. It store. looks like a grocery today. It what is it now? It a store for many years. It's, it's been called anything but the mercantile. It may be like a coffee shop. Okay. And the point is that a lot of these homes, vestiges of the neighborhood where you grew up, remain. 
And it's why if you walk through Auraria, it can feel a little bit like a like an Old West town with facades still up and homes. Directly across the street were the Rodriguez's and their cousins, the Rodriguez's on this side. And they were a fairly prominent family. They lived here for quite a while. And many of us, when we moved in, our families moved in alongside of us. So you would walk two houses away and your cousin lived there hmm. or your aunt. And it was, it was an incredibly small town kind of experience there. Uh, in many ways, you know, living in Denver at that time, living in a segregated city, I, I'm going to pull you over to here real quickly. Yeah, because let's, let's talk about the segregation for a bit. I think that we might have a tendency to idealize the past. You may have had a lovely community here, but there were places where you could and couldn't go. We were restricted. The borders here of Colfax and Spear Boulevard, they were protective for us in a lot of ways because Others didn't come through here. The police acted a little bit differently at times, but it wasn't that place where we were as vulnerable because we provided protection ourselves. But we also knew that in Denver at that time, if we traveled too far south, southwest Denver, that there were things and there were consequences that could happen to us. Uh, directly across the street, Colfax, there was Omera Fords, and they had a used car lot there. And there was a young man, his name was Luis Pineda, who was breaking into the cars, and he was shot by the police. The police said that he attacked him with a knife. Louis was shot twice in the back. There was never an autopsy. There was never an inquiry. And it was one of the first places that I saw activism taking place within the neighborhood. But that was a big warning of what happened to you when you started crossing lines out from this safe space. Even if it was just a street or two. Even if it was just a street or two. Okay, where have you taken us? This is a I, marker. Why don't you read that quote at the top? This is a marker from a production that I wrote called the West Side Oratorio. This is a quote from a song written by Daniel Valdez. It's called West Side Friends. It says, they come to the park to sit down and talk of the west side of Denver. They still reminisce of the places they missed in that west side of Denver. Do you think that enough people know what Auraria used to be? Probably not. I, I was thinking recently how Federico Peña said... This is the former Denver mayor said that we should imagine a great city and I think what we're hearing now is that we we're bulldozing whatever that city was, right? What well, quite a contrast in, in perspective. I think a great city remembers its history and it doesn't knock it down. And I think that that is something that we're seeing massively. Well, I want to ask about that. What do you remember when the news came that the neighborhood where you grew up was going to be turned into campuses? The pitch that we were given was, your kids are gonna be able to go to school. That's what our parents heard. Your kids are gonna be able to change their lives. When the vote took place within the city, this neighborhood overwhelmingly voted against it. Against. So they did not buy into it. We just didn't have the power. We didn't have the organization skills. It was at the beginning of the Chicano movement. And it was really one of those things that spurred the movement. But when I, I think back to that time, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. In about 72 or 3, I walk down this street and you see all these spaces where there's openings there. There was a print shop right there. There was a house on that corner. There was the De Leon's house right there. And I walk down these streets and these houses are boarded up. And some of them are have places where people are living. For me, what I saw was ghosts. 
I saw ghosts of the memories of the people that used to be walking here that went and had, there was processions that took place on the street for Christmas. We went to midnight mass there and people went door to door singing carols to each other for the posadas. They came into people's houses and you had, you had we call La Noche Buena, where people come in and they, and they eat and they visit. That was the neighborhood I grew up in and it was gone. Is there a part of you though that is grateful you didn't give that up for condos or a mall, but for education. Does that make a difference? Oh yes, I think it does. And, and let me let me kind of put it in perspective too. One of the things that has been great in the last 20 years, I would say, is that the campus, and particularly Metro where I teach, has embraced that history and that legacy. And we know about these scholarships. There are scholarships but the scholarships are set to expire and I think that's a conversation for us to continue to have because I don't think three generations is enough time. What it did is it dispersed our community all over the place where once we were tight, once we had a place where we were, we had a power base, we also had a lot of synergy and stuff, it disappeared. And it's, as you mentioned earlier, this is something that we're going through exactly today. We have to balance our rush for progress and profits with what is the best for our communities, what is the value going to be in the long range. Nobody can deny that education is important and this campus is, is one of the jewels of the state. I absolutely believe that. But the question is, on whose back does that build? Tony Garcia is a professor of Chicano Chicana Studies at Metro State University on the Auraria campus, previously the neighborhood where he grew up. We mentioned the Displaced Aurarian Scholarship, which is open to the children and grandchildren of those uprooted, like Noelle de Leon. She didn't really know her grandfather, who died when she was one, but the scholarship has made her feel closer to him. Indirectly, he was able to give me this education and give me this blessing. Just really gives me the opportunity to kind of honor him as a person. De Leon has graduated with a degree in accounting. She's now in the workforce. We asked what it was like to go to class on soil her family was forced to leave. It wasn't a weird feeling necessarily. I was very grateful that I did get to be on the campus and got to do so for free. It really just made me appreciate my family and appreciate our struggles and kind of want to honor them through my hard work in school and to kind of show them that, you know, I will utilize this scholarship to its fullest potential. I'm going to do well in all of my classes. I'm not going to waste any time. And De Leon's little brother starts on the Auraria campus this fall, majoring in history. Okay, earlier, Tony Garcia suggested extending the displacement scholarship. We reached out to the three Auraria schools, and none of them have plans to. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Near the ghost town of Gothic in northwestern Colorado, there's a meadow that's been a little warmer than the others around it. Scientists at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory have heated it artificially for 30 years. They call this the Warming Meadow Experiment. Put another way, they created their own climate change to see what would happen. Well, researchers just recently turned the heaters off. A member of this Meadow team, Stephanie Kivlin, is going to help us understand the project. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very curious how you 
artificially heat a meadow. Explain that in layman's terms for me. Well, we have um, about 30 heaters out suspended three feet above the ground. Um, And each of these warmed plots, there's five of them, have three of these heaters. They're about three feet uh, by six inches long, and they're infrared heaters. So we are raising the temperature by 2.1 degrees Celsius, which is meant to mimic what the whole world will see at the end of uh, this coming century. And these heaters have just been on for years round the clock or what? Right. They're on all year long. So um, even in the winter, they melt the snow. We can see that they're melting out snow two weeks earlier than the control plots nearby. And the snowpack isn't even established until two weeks later in the season because of these uh, heaters. Now, this is fascinating because it's not the only artificial warming experiment in the world, I understand. What makes this one in Colorado unique? Right. So there's uh, 50 to 100 of these experiments going around uh, the world. Ours is pretty unique because most of these other experiments only last uh, fewer than five years. And so we're really getting short uh, snapshots of ecosystem response to warming in these other locations. At Rumble, um, in this warming meadow, we have these heaters going since 1991. So we can really understand and forward project what ecosystems will look like over the next uh, three decades under warmer climates. So you're really getting the long view. Okay, you said rumble. That's cute. That's the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. That's how you refer to it. That's, yes. Okay. Uh, you have used the meadow and the the warmers to study microbes deep in the soil. Uh, help us understand first why microbes are important. Right. So we know that CO2 in the atmosphere is insulating the Earth. So part of the reason why the Earth is warmer is because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere. And one of the main drivers of CO2 in the atmosphere is how much respiration is coming out of soils by soil microbes that are degrading dead plants. That is, the soil is breathing like us, and it, it, in a way it's exhaling. Right. So the soil is exhaling, and we don't know how much it is and um, how that's going to change with warming in the future. And so I'm really interested at this harvest. We have a lot of data on how shallow soil microbes have responded to warming, so um, 0 to 10 centimeters down. We know that over time these microbes have increased their metabolism and are respiring more. Uh, and, And that continued for the first five years of this experiment. But then after five years, the microbes started slowing down. And we don't really, and, and respiring less. And we don't really know why. They might have acclimated to the warmer conditions. It could have be that the plant changes, plant community composition has changed from grasses to shrubs, and those uh, shrub debris are harder for the microbes to break down. Um, and so these are sort of the questions we're trying to get at at the shallow soils. But we know that over half of the soil carbon is actually contained uh, below 20 centimeters. And this has never been uh, studied over long-term periods of of warming. So we're really interested in what that soil carbon and those microbes are doing. Okay. And just to be clear, the microbes, uh, when they are active, when their metabolisms are uh, working over time, that means that more carbon is being a cast off from the soil into the atmosphere. But you're finding that in, in some ways they adjust and that that immediate respiration of carbon seems to be slowing down over time. Right. Okay. Exactly. That feels like just a scintilla of good news in the face of the often bad news of climate change. Do I have that right? 
That's right, but we also know that these patterns are cyclical. So other long-term warming experiments can see this uptick in microbial restoration initially, a decline, and then the microbes can uh, tick back up their respiration again. And it's not clear what what causes those cyclical patterns yet. So that's part of what we're trying to address here. Okay. It, it does sound like this warming meadows experiment, the idea of heating up the land artificially to simulate climate change, that it is giving scientists some insight into plants and which plants die and which plants replace them. And I, I wonder if it gives us some sense of, of the critters and how they interact with this land. Um, right. So we have a interdisciplinary team of four um, scientists across the United States. So Laura Souza at the University of Oklahoma is looking at all of the plant responses to warming in these plots. I am focused on the microbes. We have other people uh, focused on microbes within plants um, and then ecosystem fluxes. And we are currently sequencing the DNA of all of these microbes and their functional genes. And uh, then we will be able to see that response. Um, over time. But so far, we, yeah, we don't know who the microbial winners and losers of global climate change will be. Okay. And when I say critters, I guess that's a bit vague, but is someone looking at the animals and how they, how they interact with this plot? Yeah, I hear critters and I think microbes. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the nature of your research. Right. Um, So we do know, no, we do not have anyone looking at animals. Part of the reason is because these plots are quite small. So you can imagine that it would be difficult to uh, heat whole range sizes of animals. Okay. Um, And so, but what I can tell you, even from a microbial person, is that the ants are really enjoying the warmer climate. So ant nests are only in the warmed plots and they're everywhere, which makes for quite the fun experience. digging experience experience to get down to the soil microbes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the warming meadow experiment. This uh, has been happening in northern Colorado near the ghost town of Gothic uh, at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. They've been artificially heating this plot of land to simulate climate change. I mean, it's fascinating to me that this started in about 91. It strikes me that a, a very forward-looking person, prescient person, uh, came up with this experiment to see what climate change would do. Right. So John Hart um, started this experiment back when basically no warming experiments were happening. And I have to give him the credit for doing that because at that time I was six years old um, (laughs) and certainly didn't know anything about climate change. Um, And so because of his work and and the fact that we've had some funding from the National Science Foundation uh, over these past 30 years, we've been able to get this long-term glimpse that just wouldn't be possible without generational science. Now, the question, of course, is why these heaters are being turned off now? It sounds like there are still so many questions to answer. Help us understand this. Right. Well, it costs um, a lot of money to heat, um, you know, 30 square meters of, of grassland, so it's about $12,000 a year. The infrastructure is degrading, and we just simply couldn't financially keep it on any longer. Uh, but this gives us an opportunity to test things that we wouldn't have been able to test before, like these deep soil carbon questions where it is a destructive harvest that you could not uh, recover from. An ethical question here, what was powering, like what was the power source of the heat? Is it possible that having heated this meadow for all those years, uh, you actually 
burned enough energy that you contributed to climate change? Um, it is electrical power. So yes, that, that is possible. But the uh, data that we're getting out of this is, is, I think, more valuable than the contribution that we've, we've put to climate change here. Okay, so the research will continue. You'll see now how this plot of land responds with the heaters off. And meanwhile, uh, we have these other experiments all around the globe. Stephanie, thanks so much for helping us understand this. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is Stephanie Kivlin. She's an assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Tennessee. She has taken advantage of the Warming Meadows experiment at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory near the ghost town of Gothic, Colorado. Up next, do you ever wonder who can afford to drop cash on a home? To find out who those folks are in Colorado Wonders, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You hear about people who pay cash for homes in Metro Denver. They just buy outright, and it can leave people who want to finance feeling frustrated. The market is just so hard to get into. Who are these people who can afford a home? It's the subject of Colorado Wonders today. We answer your questions about the state, and this is CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. The story of Ashley Stoddard's frustrating search to buy a home is not unusual. I I was looking and I was putting in offers for a year and a half because I kept getting beat out by cash. Like people would just put down 300,000, 400,000 in cash. And I I don't have that. Stoddard was looking for a property in Boulder, an even more difficult market than the rest of the front range. Fewer properties, more expensive. Stoddard, who's a freelance video game artist, eventually submitted a question to CPR's Colorado Wonders, basically asking who's filling all the housing here in this expensive, hyper-competitive market. That, and, that, and that's part of why I wondered, because like in my friend group, outside of like the one guy who works at Google, um, you know, it's it's rare to own a home, <laughs> like in, unless you're uh, unless you're a software developer and engineer. And, and there are a fair amount of those, but like outside of that, I was like, who, who else is here? Like, what are they doing? Colorado has been here before. It's a desirable place to live. People have flocked here for years. They put pressure on a housing market that can't keep up. You can find old news articles about this stretching back half a century. But many longtime experts agree it's worse now, and there's still no good solution. So where are people today coming from? California, Florida, Texas, and New York, and Illinois. That's Elizabeth Garner, Colorado state demographer. She says the state, especially the Denver area, is adding millennials in droves, people who are in their early 20s or late 30s. She says part of the problem when it comes to housing is Colorado's population is also aging, and empty nesters want to downsize. They want a smaller single-family home, and then you've got the millennials that want to get in, and they want a smaller single-family home, and so you've got two huge generations going after the same product. 
And home builders are lagging way behind in constructing new product. Last year, there were fewer homes built in Colorado than in the early 2000s, and there were a million fewer people then. Then there's the issue of people moving to Colorado from high-cost housing markets like California. Justin Knoll, a longtime real estate agent in Denver, says they see a lot of offers from Californians. And they're coming with the ability to buy cash. You know, they're buying half a million dollars home with cash. And that is not necessarily because they made, you know, a ton of money or they're super rich or anything. It's just because the vehicle they used in California in real estate paid off tremendously. Median home prices in the Bay Area, for instance, are double Denver. Noel admits that's putting locals at a tremendous disadvantage. Brad Nelson kind of sees both sides of it. The Wisconsin native lived in Colorado before taking a job in California. Nelson's a manager for a hotel chain. He was living just south of San Francisco. The prices out there are outrageous. It's We had like a 600-square-foot loft. Um, so not even like a bedroom. We didn't have like a bedroom door. And it was uh, like over $3,000 a month. More than $3,000 a month for a room, essentially. Nelson was renting out his home in Denver. He and his wife planned to sell it and use the money for a down payment on a home in the Bay Area. His Denver home had appreciated a lot. Uh, which we thought was like, that's great. We couldn't get um, anything in San Francisco within an hour and a half of the city. So Nelson moved back to Denver. He even took a pay cut to move because Denver's such a popular location in his company. And that brings us back to Ashley Stoddard, who asked us who's filling up the real estate in Colorado. After more than a year, she eventually was able to buy a condo in Boulder. But here's the twist. She moved here from California, too, escaping the high prices and traffic of Los Angeles. And she admits she's actually part of the reason housing is more expensive in Colorado. Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Like, I understand that, but also, like, my income is not, you know, advancing in such a way that would that I will ever get out from under, you know, paying 50% of my income for mortgage. She says her father advised her she shouldn't pay more than 25% of her income on housing. Stoddard just laughs when he says this because really, there's no choice. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. It's not just a burger chain, it's a cultural phenomenon. In and Out has submitted plans to open what could be its first Colorado restaurant. This would be in Lone Tree. Now, last year, it announced intentions to open in Colorado Springs, but so far that hasn't happened. We got perspective on In and Out's business strategy and its history from journalist Stacy Perman, who calls it the fast food chain that breaks all the rules. She wrote a book about the company. Stacy, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. I want to go back to 1948 when Esther and Harry Snyder started the company in Southern California. Uh, what made them want to open a burger joint? It was kind of out of necessity. Um, they had come down after the war from Seattle. Harry had been in the Army. Uh, his wife, Esther, was actually in the Navy. She was a waves. And they put together this little business. They had some experience in food service. And if I can just take you back to this time in 1948, this was a period, you know, of post-war optimism and things were changing. The car culture was beginning, the highway system, and all these burger joints were opening up that had car hops and these elaborate architectural, you know, monstrosities, you know, a, a place uh, in the shape of a sombrero. And you had <laughs> car hops on um, uh, roller skates that would pull up to the car and take your order and deliver it. 
But Harry and Esther had very little money, and they were able to get a, a tiny spit of land that was sort of a triangular shape. And so they opened up their burger place. And what they did, because they didn't have the money or the space for a big parking lot, Harry was a, an electronics enthusiast, a kind of an amateur ham radio guy. And he came up with this system for this two-way radio where cars would drive in, put place their order, pull up to a, a tiny little stand, pick up their order, and drive off. And that was, for all intents and purposes, the nation's first drive through Oh, interesting. So the Snyders opened a second store in 1951 in Covina, California, not even five miles from the original location, Baldwin Park. Uh, they opened three more the following year. And as they started to grow, I wonder what they looked for in new locations. Well, it's very interesting because kind of what happened in this period created the DNA that exists to this day for Internet, even though it's it's, it's much larger. So Harry was a very exacting fellow, and he had um, a couple of mottos. One was keep it simple, do one thing and do it well, and then quality, cleanliness, and service. So when they were looking for a place, first of all, he wanted to own the, the, the place outright. He didn't want to be in debt. That was kind of something from growing up in the Depression. Huh. And he wanted them to be close enough that he could go to all of them, know everybody that worked there. So they had to be in a, you know, a very close radius of each other. And he had very exacting standards of the people that worked there. So he wouldn't open up a new one until those two factors were in place, but also that he had trained somebody to manage the place the way he would have managed it if he was standing there himself, although he was often at these restaurants quite frequently. Even as chains like McDonald's, Wendy's, uh, eventually, I think, Kentucky Fried Chicken grew rapidly, the Snyders continued to expand in and out at a slow, steady pace. You refer to it as glacial. Then Harry was diagnosed with lung cancer. He died in 1976. Uh, By that time, there were nearly 20 in and outs. And uh, barely 25 years old, Harry's youngest son, Rich, took over the family business. Uh, How did things change? Things changed, you know, in some ways they changed a lot and in some ways they didn't change much at all. Rich was, you're right, he was 25 years old. He was the youngest son, um, but he was kind of born to do this. And I think he took a look around and he had a real respect for what his parents had built. What he did was expand the chain without, you know, cutting corners um, it, it, it was very important for the family to keep in and out family owned. They had no interest in franchising or going through an IPO. But what he did is he made some changes in order to to affect that change. He professionalized management for a lot of years. It was people that had worked. I mean, they still have people that worked there for 20, 30, 40 years. But he created in and out University to professionalize management. He expanded at a greater pace than his father. Um, during his father's time, most in and outs were in peripheral suburbs. He started moving them into urban centers. In order to do that, he had to make some changes. He wanted to open 10 a year instead of maybe one every few years. And so they had to start leasing property because they didn't have the cash flow to own every property. He also implemented the double drive-through. Um, there was so much volume. There's still so huh. much volume to this day that he implemented the double drive-through, which became kind of a blessing and a curse because while it became a signature part of In-N-Out Burger, most municipalities looked askance at it because it created it still creates enormous traffic snarls. Wherever they are. Yeah, and certainly wherever they open. I mean, the scenes in your book from openings of restaurants, they require police presence and people wait for hours for an In-N-Out burger. 
I thought I might just read a little bit from the book. Um, You say that it's a menu that's barely changed since Harry Truman was president. No Mediterranean wraps, Caesar chicken salads, or children's menus. Facing the antiseptically clean open kitchen, customers saw that there were no heat lamps, freezers, microwaves, no heavy odor of grease and meat. There were no bags of flash frozen fries on site either. Rather, in a procedure that has gone unchanged since the chain first opened in 48, a cheery associate hand peels, cuts, and fries the raw Kennebec potatoes grown especially for the chain. So this speaks to the food and that you think this is what sets the company apart. It's it's an interesting experience, and they do very little advertising. They don't have to because, by and large, their customer base from 70 years to the present have done the heavy lifting. Um, as I discussed in the book, there's something I call like a conversion process. I mean, someone new to an area where there's an In-N-Out, they'll always say, hey, have you tried In-N-Out Burger? They'll bring them in and they'll initiate them, not just to, you know, their first burger, but how to order the burger, the secret menu. Um, As you mentioned, the menu hasn't changed since 1948. That was part of Harry's philosophy of keeping it simple. I mean, in that way, they can be laser focused on quality, but they don't have to make investments in, you know, new equipment for new kinds of products. And it keeps the customers focused on what's great about In-N-Out Burger. I mean, the the fries, like you said, come from these specially produced cannabis potatoes. The the milkshakes use actual real ice cream. I mean, there's, you know, the, the they only use the best onions, the best tomatoes. In fact, um, they have their own commissaries that create their own beef patties. And those are in a, you know, like a 500 radius from the stores because they deliver them fresh every couple of days. In the early days, Harry used to stand over his butcher and watch them cut the beef. And at one point before he died, he bought a cattle ranch in California. And he thought, maybe I will just start the process from raising the cattle myself. But as the chain grew, that just became an impossible situation. Oh. But I'm just I'm pointing this out to describe, you know, the the uh, effort that goes into quality is it, it cannot be underestimated. It's something of a saga when you look at the family behind the company. So in 1993, Rich Snyder, along with a few other key players in the company, died in a plane crash. His older brother Guy took over, but his tenure didn't last long. He died, I think, in 99 from a drug overdose. His daughter Lindsay was in line to inherit in and out, but she was just a teenager when he died. So uh, there's a lot of internal turmoil after that, multiple lawsuits. The matriarch Esther took over for a while until her death. Lindsay's in charge now. I understand the the family's quite private. How was it to write a book about their company? Yes, it's an interesting question. In order to get this story, and also when I started working on the story, the primaries had all passed away. Harry and Esther had died. And as you pointed out, both the, the brothers had died. I was able to interview hundreds of people who had worked there, uh, other family members, close associates of the family, to in order to really get this this uh, portrait of this family that uh, started what, as you described, is a, has become more than just a fast food chain, but a cult phenomenon. You have done a lot of business reporting, and I wonder if there are other companies out there like In and Out, or do you just think it is unique and something that other companies could learn from? I, I think it's unique. I think there are definitely aspects that other companies try to emulate, and there are some, you know, that do so better than others. 
But I think what's interesting about In-N-Out is much of their success grew organically, and they hewed to this philosophy that the Snyders, you know, put in place that I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, which was just really simple. (laughs) Quality, cleanliness, and service. Treat your employees well. Treat your customers well. Don't cut on profits. And they've shown, you know, counterintuitively to sort of the way American success is usually defined, that they're hugely successful. What do you think's ahead for their future? Well, in in my opinion, I think it's about expansion. I mean, as you said, uh, In-N-Out is moving into Colorado. That's the seventh state for the chain in 70 years. And if you think about it in the, these terms, they opened the same year that the McDonald's brothers opened McDonald's huh. in pretty much the same geographical area. To date, or the last time I checked, rather, there are probably over 30,000 McDonald's around the world. There's, you know, less than 350 In-N-Out burgers yeah, speaking um, that in America. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Stacey, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Business reporter Stacey Perman wrote In-N-Out Burger, a behind-the-counter look at the fast food chain that breaks all the rules. We spoke in February of last year. Colorado's still waiting for its first In-N-Out location. And we're all about keeping in touch with you. So you can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. And if you ever miss us on the radio, we're a podcast. So you can listen anytime. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.